think technology plays an important role in costuming anyway because as technology develops, there's more that you can do with it. I love working from the very beginning and seeing it at the end. And the feeling of fulfillment it gives you is like so great. And I think if you learn somebody's name and you use it, it's like the most important word to a person when you hear your name being said. Yeah, it's like put some beads on a string, done, you know. <laughs> Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. My name is Anna Aguilera and on this episode we will be talking to Joseph Koda about designing and fabricating costumes and props. Australian-born Joseph is a designer of props, costumes, accessories and puppets. After touring with Phantom of the Opera and Wicked around Australia, New Zealand and Asia, he spent years as a manager of the creative costuming department at Universal Studios Singapore. In 2013, Joseph began working for Franco Dragone at several of his productions across Europe and Asia. He has recently relocated to Hong Kong to launch his own innovative workshop studio, J1K Costume Technology and Innovation, and he's currently working on several large projects in China. Joseph, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Good to see you and good to talk to you. We want to start today with talking about the very basics of what you do and defining costume props, accessories and puppets. So tell us a little bit about those elements and what you do in your workplace. Okay, so I think my thoughts about costumes has evolved over the years. So when I was younger, I would think of them as anything worn on the body for like a, uh, a movie or play, theatre, anything like that. But now I realise there's a lot more to it than just that. Um, so costumes now I think of it more as any kind of soft garment worn on the body, you know, for any kind of theatre um, performance. And you kind of also have costume props, which is kind of anything worn on the body but a bit more structural, maybe something solid, something a bit unusual, which is a lot more difficult than just putting some soft fabrics together. And accessories is really anything one on the body that's not a part of the clothing, like a headpiece, a mask, maybe something on the arms like gauntlets, like things that you could imagine at home, like jewellery that you would wear like to adorn the body. And puppets are, of course, kind of extensions of the human body and human performance. So we're manipulating them to create a character, whatever this puppet might be. You're using your body and your focus to kind of animate this static being and giving it character. And it can be, they can be anything really. They can be huge. They can be tiny, tiny little things. So it's really something that's an extension of you outside of your body, I would say. And how did you get into this career? Like what, what, what drove you to be working with costumes and props and, uh, and all of these things uh, when you were younger? Well, I think when I was younger, I, I was really a creative child and I loved to make things. Um, and I used to get like palm leaves from the garden and weave something and just, I just like making things. And then as I got older and I was in high school, in my teenage years, I, I started earning some money and I really enjoyed buying new clothes and I found them very interesting and kind of was drawn towards fashion. And originally I was... I was on a path to study architecture at university and then quickly realized it wasn't really for me. 
and I thought about what I wanted to do and realized I wanted to do something creative. And I thought, okay, well, maybe fashion. So in the town I lived in, there was only fashion courses available at college. So I enrolled. Um, but in my years there, I kind of felt like fashion could be a little bit restrictive for me. And it was about creating something that was trendy that everybody liked at the time. And costumes, I could see as something much more than that. It was like your imagination was the limit and you could really create a character and a story. And at the time, I think Cirque du Soleil was becoming a big deal and I was just amazed at what they were doing. And I loved the colours and just shapes and everything. And I think also because a lot of their costumes were structured, you know, they had some kind of 3D element to them, like whether it was like a half musical instrument, half human being. And I just found that really interesting. And because I like making things, not just making clothes, it was kind of a cross between being able to build something, fabricate something in 3D, but also have something that you can wear on your body and it's like becomes a part of you. And I'm very interested in working with the human body. And so, yeah, I just started in TAFE and I did a TAFE diploma, which is very hands-on, which was perfect for me because I just started immediately the first day on an industrial machine. And you just taught everything you need to know when you get out there in the industry and how to do it. Um, whereas university can be a lot about like the theory behind everything. And then you get thrown out into the industry and you actually have no practical skills. How would you explain TAFE to the international community in terms of its education? And it's more of a, I don't know if there's an equivalent in other parts of the world. So just to sort of in simple terms. I think from my knowledge, it's kind of an equivalent to college in the States. It's like a... A trade as such, maybe? Yeah, like a trade. So in the, the TAFE campus that I studied at, um, it was like uh, people studying to be a chef's or it was uh, carpenters and fashion and some IT kind of people. So you would often arrive um, on campus in the morning and you'd see the carpentry students in like a big kind of football field and they were constructing a wooden deck, you know, and it was like their practical skills being tested and they had to build a deck, you know. So it was this, this kind of place. It was kind of quite unique. And a lot of the teachers had spent many years in the industry so when you learn from them, they're really teaching you everything that they know and they teach you the, the way that they need to teach you and then they teach you the way that they developed themselves when they were out there in the industry that could be a shortcut, you know. So they'd say, this is the proper way, but then there's this way that we did and it's much faster and you get the same result. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a cool kind of in-between education experience. That sounds like me going to Joseph. How do I solve this problem? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you go from there to um, to do Broadway tours and then branch out to to circus and then having your own shop? Well, I think a lot of it's to do with my personality and I always like to be improving myself and wanting to explore more and take new opportunities. So I think sometimes having that attitude always out there kind of attracts opportunities for you. And every job that I did, I tried my hardest and I worked long hours and I'd show up early. When I, when I first started working in theatre, it was when I was studying at Tate and um, my partner was doing a tour with his performing arts school in the Brisbane QPAC, Queensland Performing Arts Centre. 
And so he's one of those people that is very charismatic and takes opportunities. So he was walking past the wardrobe and he was like, oh, I just need to duck in here quickly. And he ducked in there and saw this lady and she ended up being the head of the wardrobe department. And he was like, oh, my partner really loves costume. Like, do you have any jobs? <laughs> and uh, they're like, yeah, we're always looking for male dresses for the, the shows that are coming to Brisbane. There's not many. So that was kind of my first job. So I, I started working at the theatre and I think I just showed a lot of enthusiasm. Like I would arrive four hours early before my shift and kind of <laughs> hang around the green room. And I visit the wardrobe and like the touring team was there. And I'd just be looking at what they're doing and like really wanting to like help or do something and just participate and show like, I have some skills, you can utilize me, like give me something. And I think they didn't trust me because I was a student and you're like, they're thinking, oh, these costumes are like 25 years old from the original, original production of Phantom. You can't have a student like touching them. So it took some time probably of me harassing them. And then finally they're like, okay, you can repair the the kabuki curtains that are on the proscenium at the beginning of the show because every show they get holes torn in them from the, the statues and all the angels and things. And these are like silk curtains that are like probably 20 years old, so they get holes. So my first job was just stitching all the holes before the night shows. Um, but I did it, and I did it with vigour and enthusiasm. And then slowly they were offering me more, and then one day they said, oh, we could really use someone like you on tour. So then I was offered a touring job. I think after I think I followed them to two other cities because I was thinking, oh, you know, well, if you have work and you need me, I don't mind to like start to relocate and maybe move to another city. And then at least then I have a job and and then I think I followed them to uh, two cities and then they were like, okay, now we have extra budget because we're taking the tour here and so we can give you like the proper contract. And then yeah, I just started from there and. I had a job on Wicked um, in Sydney, and um, my partner's my partner was working in Universal Studios in Singapore. And um, the head of costuming department heard about me and heard I was working on Wicked, which we, he was a huge fan of. So immediately he wanted to like just talk to me and hear about it and know about the show. And so when I went to Singapore, I organised to meet him and. He said to me, oh, you know, we have some costumes we need redesigned for a show. Like maybe you want to try to propose something. And um, so I just did some sketches and I sent them to him and then they ended up using them, like maybe two or three of my designs to do the new monster show at uh, Universal Studios Singapore. And then um, when I finished at Wicked, I ended up moving to Singapore and just deciding to go somewhere different and live with my partner. And I took a full-time job there. And when I started, they didn't really know what I could do for them, but he knew that he just wanted me to be there and then I would be an asset in some way. And I noticed that in Singapore, there's just a lot of opening for people like me who have like skills and maybe like a natural leadership quality. And I was seeing a lot happening and feeling like more could be done. Like, you know, my department was costume tech. So basically we were in charge of maintaining all the costumes in the park any mascots, you know, we had to run up for emergency painting uh, for penguin beaks, you know, matching the colours on the mascots before they went out for their next dance and this kind of thing. But I just felt like all we were doing was this kind of work and they were having a lot of events. And I said, well, why can't we just make this stuff in-house instead of, like, going to a vendor because I can do it. And so, like, you know, you need six headpieces, I can build them here. 
So then slowly I started working in this way. And then over my years there, I created like a, a, full, a full team of an in-house uh, crew where we would produce a lot of headpieces for the parades, for the shows, special events, um, a lot of special effects, makeup, prosthetics for Halloween because we had big Halloween events of like more than 400 people per night. So we'd have to do makeup for 400 people in like three hours. So I had a lot of opportunity available to me there. And I just said, oh, I can do that. Oh, I can do that. I can do that. And, you know, I just tried. And I had faith in like my abilities. So I thought I don't really know how to do that, but I know that I can problem solve and I can figure out how to do it. And I know that I'll do it well. So then I would just try. And then I realized that, oh, I can do that. So my my path went from like really like fashion and uh, clothing production into more costumes, and then I started getting into like three uh, D kind of stuff, like headpieces and all different kinds of things, like weird costumes for the parade, like a girl that has this huge film reel as a skirt, something like this. So yeah, naturally I progressed into accessories making, and then I think the next progression from there was puppetry because it's really like something. You you can wear it on your body, you know, it can be outside of your body and it's still using soft materials, it's using some hard materials, you need some skills in 3D fabrication and understanding like how things work in 3D and mechanics and mechanisms, which I was really interested in. So, yeah, I think just slowly over time, I was just taking all any kind of opportunity I could and especially design work. It's kind of an interesting story how I started my my work with Franco and where I am now is I was I had designed some costumes for a grand opening of the resort in Singapore and they were sent to a vendor of ours in Hong Kong called Limelight Costume Services um, and they came to Universal to do some fittings uh, with the performers for the show and I was downstairs and the manager of the costuming department introduced me to this lady. And she's like, oh, this is Virginia from Limelight. I'm really busy. I have to run to a, a meeting, but she has to get to the airport. Do you mind showing her how to get to the taxi rank? And I said, sure. So I just took her to the taxi rank and we had a nice chat on the way. And then she was gone. And um, maybe a year later, I got an email from her out of the blue and she had seen a costume design come through into her company and was like, oh, wow, they've, they've got a really nice designer working there. And he, she just Googled my name from my signature at the bottom of the design. And um, she realized that it was me. And she was like, oh, I met him. He was really nice to me. And I'm going to offer him a, a job on Franco Dragon's show in Wuhan. So she wrote to me and I was offered a job to work with Tinip, who was an Academy Award winner for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So I was kind of a, an assistant to the assistant designer, which she was at the time. So, yeah, I went from Beijing and then uh, from Singapore, sorry, and moved to Beijing. And that's where I started my kind of journey with Franco, which was another crazy experience. And there was also another opportunity I found similar to Universal where I could there was a lot of opening for me. Forge your path. Yeah. So yeah. I just kind of did it, then it continued. And then again, a few years later, Virginia contacted me and she said, oh, can you come to Hong Kong and train my team to do silicone application on costumes? Because she said, I've seen your work in that and it's really interesting and we have a project where we need this 
So she paid me to fly over for a week and I did some special costumes for them for Norwegian Cruise Line. And then she, she was chatting with me and she said, oh, how would you feel about coming and working with me in Hong Kong? And so, yeah, we started talking and that's kind of how I got here now. I decided to um, break away from Franco after many years working with him and um, start my own little team. And I started my own company and registered it in Dubai. And two of the employees and my colleagues from Dubai that I worked with on a show called La Pearl, I brought them over with me because they were these amazing Ukrainians that I'd been working with for a few years. And so we started like my own little team here. So I partnered with uh, Virginia at Limelight. And so we kind of forged this new kind of innovation department. So now we offer very special kinds of costumes. So we can, you know, we work on circus, theme park. We can do avant-garde kinds of things. We can do exhibition quality. I can do headpieces. You know, we do puppets. So we kind of combined forces. So, it's, yeah, it's really like a circle because I met her in Singapore. That took me to Franco and then she brought me back here. Like, so we kept meeting and yeah, everything's kind of connected. It's always funny how you never know how um, you're going to get that next job, but it can be like one of those chance encounters, right? And then suddenly it totally. leads on to a big chapter of your life that yes. <laughs> that you didn't know that was coming around the corner. Do you find exactly. that, now? you know, I mean, obviously you work with a lot of different clients right now and then... It, the design process, does it vary differently from whether you're working with a theme park to a show to, I mean, maybe mm-hmm. you still do some theatrical stuff, but, yep. and also the sort of navigation of China and, and Asia in general, you know, it's not necessarily a linear process like it would be mm-hmm. in other countries. And so how do you how do you apply a methodology of, of a design process in, in the environments that you work? Well, I think you need to consider what you're designing for um, like you said, there's like circus, there's uh, theatre, there's theme park, um, and then Franco Dragon shows are all very different, like water shows, that's a whole other element. So you really need to know first what you're designing for. You know, are you designing for uh, a show where it's going to be more worn 10 times a day? You know, what kind of climate are the costumes being worn in? What kind of performance will it be? And then, of course, there's cultural aspects. So you know, I've worked um, in Asia, in uh, Europe, in Dubai, Middle East. So each place you work really have different kinds of restrictions and challenges. So whether it's a religious thing, whether it's more about the culture and modesty. So it can it depends. And each each kind of area that you're designing for sometimes has its pros and cons. Like I feel like, oh, I love doing theme park costumes because they're very bright and colorful and exaggerated. But, you know, it's frustrating maybe to design a costume where they say, oh, you can't show skin. So you have to develop a full body lycra suit and it just kind of, you know, spoils the effect that you're trying to create on the body. But then sometimes these challenges create, you know, it kind of gets your imagination going. So you're trying to work with the challenges or with the restrictions and you kind of develop and discover something to work around it and no one would know that that was something that you had to consider when they see the costume. And, of course, you know, working somewhere like Paris is different because they almost wore nothing in the Lido. (laughs) (laughs) That was a neat, a very short production time on that one, huh? (laughs) Yeah, it's like put some beads on a string, 
dumb, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, they have they have like the elements of like major amounts of accessories. So they have headpieces, you know, things adorning their body, maybe like a, a waist wasted corset. So it's just something accentuating the waist, but leaving all the other parts revealed. So obviously much smaller, but then really high amounts of detail and time. And especially working somewhere like Paris, you know, you have amazing artists and people who do one thing in their life and do it amazingly. So I got to work with some really amazing people, you know, who one man, it was his job was just he would make wire structures to attach all the feather like backpacks and headpieces to. And he'd been doing it his whole life and worked with all different kinds of designers. And I'm at his house and he just has this like amazing workshop full of all the old experiments and prototypes he'd done in his life. And he just did this one thing, but amazingly and like made his whole life about it. And yeah, so interesting, you know. It's so fascinating to meet somebody that um, masters their craft to such an extent, right? And especially yeah. in a single focus, you know, it's, it's, you know, they always say it's the, like the 10,000 hours rule, like you, you become a master of something after you've done 10,000 hours of it. And yeah. he would, if he's done it his whole life, I mean, it's like yeah. the sensei of, <laughs> of wire work, right? Definitely. Yeah. And he, his wife was telling me that, you know, he'd been looking for an apprentice for a long time to kind of download his knowledge to because he was getting old and close to retirement age. But he's very like a stubborn man you know, a bit difficult and he finds it hard to find people that have patience for him. I, I was like, when, I was like throwing out my hand and saying, I'll live here and I'll learn from him. And like, I don't even understand what he's saying. So he can't really bother me. <laughs> yeah, it was just an amazing process because, you know, we're making a headpiece. So um, maybe I would input something like I would make the, the base that is actually worn on the head. And then he would make a wire structure which attached to the base to then support the feathers and then that would go off to the special person that did all the feather work to do the feathers and then it would come back to the guy that does all the crystal um, installation so they really like separate it like this you know whereas usually mm. in my work with Franco Dragone it's like I do everything you know something needs to be done I do get everything from start to finish which is my favorite kind of process you know, that's why I love working on theatre, like uh, to do show creations. I love working from the very beginning and then seeing it at the end. And the feeling of fulfilment it gives you is like so great. So it's the same as doing any small job every day. Obviously, working with designers are amazing and I love that, but it's also nice to sometimes design something yourself. And then you really have thought about it when you put pen to paper and you know as you're going exactly how you're going to build it. So it's really clear in your mind and you can then bring it to life and then see it on stage and that feeling is amazing. But it's also nice just to work with a designer and ask them what they want and then give them ideas how to achieve it and then they really put their trust in you and then you experiment, you know, you do some back and forth and then you create something that you love and then that they love and that makes, you know, gives you a lot of fulfilment. I think that makes you quite employable then, right, because you, you're happy to take the lead role but you're also happy to take a, a supporting role in the process or anything in between. And that, that I mean, yeah. that's such a wanted kind of, uh, and I think that's a very Australian approach, you know. It's, it's mm. what, what does it take to get the job done um, and I'll, I'll fill that. I'll fill that role if that's what you need me to do, you know. You think you, think you agree with me? Yeah, I think being versatile is important. Like definitely I see 
I have respect and I see value in people that do one thing, you know, and do it amazingly, you know, and that's really their art form. But I think for me personally, I I do one thing and then I see something else and I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. I want to do that now. So I find it hard to do just one thing because it's not enough. <laughs> and then, <laughs> um, so I think over time it makes you versatile and definitely it makes you very employable because, you know, one minute I'm sewing a piece of clothing and then the next minute, you know, I'm making a shoe cover and then, you know, I'm being asked to to mould and sculpt some special effects makeup for a video shoot and then I'm applying makeup, you know, and so you're able to fulfil all these roles. Um, and, of course, that's a desirable trait with um, employers, I think, if they have somebody that can do multiple roles or even just the fact that you have an understanding of other parts of the process so it makes your job in that one part of the process easier for them because you're you're thinking ahead of what has to happen next. So you're able to really offer something that's had some forethought and, you know, you have a really clear understanding. Whereas some people, you know, they are maybe handed something and they just do what they're told and then later on it goes to the next step in the process like rehearsal. And then people find out they didn't think about whether the shoes slip on that floor or not or whether that material um, is resistant to chlorine. You know, and then there's a problem that then has to come back to you. So sometimes if you've worked in different kind of areas, you kind of have an idea what the next step's going to be. So when you're working on one of the steps beforehand, you're kind of already thinking, oh, well, I need to ask what floor is the stage? Like what colours are in the theatre, you know, that it should match with? Or you can ask all these kind of questions and it really, I think, it helps the designer because... Otherwise, they have to think of everything themselves to tell you. But if you can kind of think for them and with them, it's uh, very beneficial. Very curious about, you've mentioned a lot of things that we not always think on costumes. Props, props is like everything goes, but maybe <laughs> not so much costumes. So it's the, the role of technology and new materials. What do you see in the industry? How do they shape uh fabrication i don't know what do you like about them but do you see like I, i'm sure you've seen the trend on new materials both in fabrics and then and maybe some resins and i don't know endless paint and everything's changing i mean new materials are being developed all the time because they're better than the previous ones so i think i always love to explore what new materials are out there because you find that it fulfills like requirements of 10 other materials, you know, or a specific, like say, for instance, one thing that I'm always really relying on is a really good, strong glue <laughs> for anything that I'm building. So sometimes I'll have a favorite glue and then I'll one day do some more research and I'll discover a different kind of glue and then I test it and I realize, oh my God, it glues this and it glues that. Now I can just use that. <laughs> and then I find another one. This is my new favorite glue. <laughs> yeah. And then when you sometimes you research companies and it's like they have the most amazing products and adhesives that do things you've never thought of. And then it like sparks your ideas and you're like, oh my God, so I can do this and I can do that. And same thing with materials like for costumes. For example, one of my favorite materials to use is neoprene, which kind of was introduced to me um, when I was in Singapore. But more so working with Franco Dragoon because of the water element to the shows. 
and it's an amazing fabric because it's soft and it's stretchy, but it's also structural. Like it has some, it holds shape. It holds so form you can do very some, well, doesn't it? Yeah. So you can do some interesting things. And I've actually built headpieces out of neoprene using it like foam sheets because it could go in water. It was flexible. They could fall on their head on top of it and it would just pop back into shape. But a problem I found with it is that it, it's very hot. You know, it holds heat, you know, because it's a layer rather in between two layers of like a stretch fabric. But now I've discovered a company in Japan that makes the neoprene full of perforations, but the fabric bonded on either side doesn't have holes. So it doesn't look like it has any holes. So now it's fulfilled this role of being the material that I love to use, but I can also use it in costumes where before I couldn't because it got too hot for the artist. Um, and there's more breathability and there's more ability for the costume to dry faster in between shows and this kind of thing. So I think that's why I always love exploring and seeing what people are developing and I think technology plays an important role in costuming anyway because as technology develops there's more that you can do with it so I mean you see the craze of uh, electrical parades for Disney and this kind of thing now everything has LEDs and heel wire and all of this kind of stuff attached and then a pro problem for them probably was like power you know getting power to everybody and in the beginning they probably were in huge battery packs that were like maybe dangerous, got hot, had acid or something, very heavy, you know, hard to disguise in the costume. So then, of course, as technology is developing, batteries are getting smaller and smaller and, you know, longer lasting, higher power, this kind of stuff. So now you can fit tiny batteries, very flat in the costume, that power something that maybe a car battery <laughs> was being used, you know, years ago. So I think in that way, you know, it's, it plays a really important role in costuming as well as um you know obviously things like 3d printing has become a big craze and technology is developing there where you're able to start printing in flexible materials that can be worn on the body without fear of smashing it you can use it to quickly develop a prototype of something so you'll know in a few hours whether it's going to work or it's the right size um, people 3D print objects to make a mould where in the past maybe you had to sculpt something out of clay and obviously it's going to be much more precise and perfect and symmetrical and accurate. So, yeah, I think technology and in costuming is really exciting and, I mean, I could go on about it, like, even more, like every aspect that it affects and why I like it. What's your research methods in that? Like, how do you go and find those uh, new technologies? How do you come across those things to start? I mean, because obviously you're very busy making stuff and producing stuff as well. So what's your process for that? Well, there's a few ways. I think one way, one way is when you're looking for vendors. Obviously, I'm always working in many different countries and every time I relocate, I have to find a new supplier for specialty materials. Because I don't use just like some lycra from a fabric shop or some cotton. You know, it's like I'm using specialty material. Um, and then adhesives and things like that are all specialty. So then you move to a new country and it's like you have to start from scratch. Like your sourcing list, like your suppliers that can get things to you that you need. There's always a time where I'm just online searching for adhesive companies, special effects suppliers, cosplay suppliers, like anything around that can <laughs> offer me something. So sometimes when you're exploring those kind of people, different countries offer different things and have something you've never used before. And not often you're wanting to buy it 
not knowing what it is just to try it. But sometimes you get a free sample of something or sometimes you'll be introduced to a new material just from being in a different workplace in a different country. Sometimes I love watching YouTube videos of like my favorite designers or different people that I'm interested in. And then I'll see in their workshop and I'll see like a specific brand of something that they're using that I have been wanting to know for years. And then I screenshot and I zoom in. I'm like, what does that say? And I try to find (laughs) what I think it says. And then I'll like find it. And I'm like, I know what that is now. I can try it for myself. Because of course, like you can imagine some people in this field and in this industry are very protective of their secrets and Mm. companies as well, specifically. So when they've developed something or they have a material or something that's working well for them and it gives them the upper hand over other businesses, you know, they don't want that information to get out. So often you're seeing it all around you and then you're like, but where do I get that? And you don't know even how to start searching for it. So sometimes I'm lucky and I can find it quite quickly just from being like, oh, what's some keywords, something that, you know, reminds me of this thing. I can search for it. Maybe I'll find a picture of something similar and then I can jump into that rabbit hole and then maybe it'll take me somewhere else and I'll find it. And then sometimes you can't find it at all. And then one day just by chance, it'll come to you or you'll meet somebody that tells you about it. But me as an individual, I love to share all my information. So whenever I work with people and they, if they show an interest in what I'm doing, I probably don't shut up because I start showing them everything that I have in my workshop. Oh, look at this. You know, <laughs> you can use this for that. And you just like use the heat gun and then you form it and it becomes this thing. And, um, and then I'm like, yeah, you know, come and, you know, ask questions. You can hang out in my workshop if you want. I can totally yeah. vouch for that. Yeah, spent so much time asking questions and getting answers, so it's good. But um, so this leads me to something that I've thought will branch out a little bit about the technology and it might Mm -hmm. be coming back in a future episode, who knows. Uh, But tell (laughs) us about your relationship with people. People love working with you, people love working for you. And I think there's two different things and... You usually get along mm. with people really well. Why, why do people love you that much? Mm. Well, that's very nice of you to say, firstly. I think my kind of motto in life or what I, my attitude is that I just really like to treat people the way that I want to be treated. You know, as Anna said before, like you never know what opportunities are coming up next. But I'm, I, I'm not behaving with that in the forefront of my mind. But it's, it's, just, it's like a symptom of my behavior, I think. So. First and foremost, I just want to treat people with respect and how I would want to be treated as a human being. And then a symptom of that is, you know, I think people are drawn to that. And if you give them that kind of respect and time of day and attention, then they are drawn to you something. Working in different countries and different cultures, you often see that, you know, I thought that quality was quite common in people. But um, I find that the more places I work, it's not that common, actually. In my younger years, I was very introverted and I saw the value in when people would give me attention because it was hard for me to talk to people. So when I had people coming up to talk to me, obviously that was something that immediately I could react to because I didn't have to go through that fear of creating a conversation or an interaction with them. They came to me and it was like, oh, you know, oh, now I can have this talk, but I didn't have to be the one to start it. So now when I see people kind of in the same way, I think that I want to try to show them that you don't have to 
being like worried to talk to me or like you know open up one example of that that i really felt rewarded by was when i was working in dubai you know there's so many different people working in the theater with us you know you have performers you've got crew you've got the wardrobe team you know technical team backstage crew artistic directors you know all the people in the offices company managers this kind of thing and then there's also the people in the building who are the security guards you know and i found that the security guards were often overlooked and not really treated like people you know you just walk in and ignore them and then keep going but i felt like they were working really hard they were always there 24 hours a day they were often there when you left at night and still there in the morning and i just felt like wow they you know i really respect them and i don't know why nobody is like saying hi and giving them a smile or something like that so I'd make sure in the, when I would see them, I'd like learn their name. And I think if you learn somebody's name and you use it, it's like the most important word to a person when you hear your name being said. And then immediately you can create a connection with somebody. So I tried to learn as many people's names as I could and I would greet them with their name so that they felt like they had some importance you know, to the people there. You know, it really helps you spark some really rewarding relationships and getting to know some people that are very like from a completely different background than you you know not creative at all maybe something totally different and not creative and interesting like as an occupation for me but you know they can share their life story and yeah like you just never know what can come out of that so my example earlier where i met this lady from a costume shop in hong kong and I was just friendly to her and helped her to the taxi rank. And then she remembered that here we are years later working together for the second time. And it was all really just from that one interaction. That's probably why I think it's just treating people the way that you want to want to be treated. That's the secret, my secret. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a little bit wrapping up kind of. So what would you say is the thing that you like the most about your job? There's a lot of things, different things I love about my job. But I think what I appreciate the most is that I can be creative. There's not many people who can make a career out of being creative. And just the fact that I'm doing something that I love and being paid to do that. You know, so many people think that a career is something that you do for money, but you shouldn't necessarily like it. Whereas I get to do something I love and I get paid for it. And I think when you do something you love, you're going to have passion and you're going to have a good work ethic and you're going to work hard at it. So you're going to be, you would, you would assume, naturally good at it, you know. So I think I've been lucky enough to have support from family and friends and my partner and to follow my, you know, the things that I love and my passion, which has kind of led me to doing something that I'm really good at and I'm willing to put in time and energy into it because I enjoy it. So on the flip side, if you could change something about your job or the industry, what would it be? I think it depends what way you look at it. If you're looking at it from like how it impacts the globe, I think it would be about a more sustainable approach to production because I think I've experienced a lot of waste, mm. um, whether it's things, money going into things that weren't used you know, it's a lot of materials and offcuts and things being used, especially when you're in a production industry. I mean, and I'm quite 
you know, I care a lot about the planet and the environment, so it's definitely something I think of. Um, but if it's more about industry-related, it's a difficult question. <laughs> it's but, good. It's good if you don't have anything that you want to change. And I, I, I don't yeah. think that the planet is not necessarily and nothing is unrelated to that, even our industry. And uh, yeah. even though a lot of the uh, driving forces behind uh, making shows and making things in theme parks are not from that premise, mm-hmm. I think at some point it will need to be or will become a, a greater focus in terms of sustainability, or at least I hope so. Yeah. And and the yeah. fact that it's already on people's minds now is, is mm-hmm. um, and that we're conscious of it and maybe even a little bit guilty of it, then it's yeah. starting to change that psychology on and the approach over time, you know. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, now that we're talking a little bit, I think one thing that I could comment on that question is that I would probably change, you know, the importance that it has in different cultures around the world. You know, coming from Australia, I feel like our industry doesn't really have the respect of others. It's uh, in other countries too. Like you tell them, oh, I do costumes. And they're like, oh, but that's a hobby. What's your job? (laughs) And I'm like, no, that's my job. So it can be difficult in different areas in life, like trying to explain things to people, like anything like with the government, applications for something, bureaucracy. It's like there's never that box that you can tick where it's like what's your industry or like what what's your occupation? Mm. Um, or, you know, when you're going across the border and it's like what do you do and you put costumer and people have no idea what that is. Um <laughs> So I think, you know, now in like this crisis with COVID, you know, it's very clear, you know, that our industry doesn't have a lot of respect of many governments and isn't seen as important because we're often the industry that, you know, budgets are cut from. Yeah, they're just not appreciating it for what it is. And like, if you think of a country like Paris, you know, Paris is what it is because of all the artists and like thinkers and great minds that came from there. So if you didn't have a creative industry, None of that would exist, you know, and we would just have, you know, government offices and buildings and, you know, the daily grind. You don't have all that beautiful added stuff of life, you know. Mm. It's everything that creates a culture, you know, and and, and, a, yeah, exactly. and a space around the world. And if it's not there, then what is there left, right? And and that's, yeah. you know, hopefully in my dream there's, there's, a, there's a future where we're not valuing a country on there their economy but more on their their happiness in terms of communities but that's a very utopian ideal really (laughs) but in that but in that is arts you know and that in that kind of model of a of a country that values um people's happiness and well-being and everything arts is of course a, a large part of that i'm sure yeah i agree well, Joseph, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really good to hear your experiences and thank you for sharing with us all your knowledge and time. You're welcome. I really like to for people to go and visit your website, see what you do, Google you, because you do some pretty cool stuff. So uh, do you want to share your website with our listeners? Sure. So my website, my personal website, is just www.josephcoda.com. So J-O-Z-E-F-K-O-D-A. And you can see examples of my work from my very young years to almost today. But currently I'm working on some things that I can't share with the world yet. So maybe, you know, you can keep an eye out in the next year or so and you'll see them. Um, And, yeah, you can just check out what I'm doing 
anyone can email me if they have questions or want to know more or have any interest or you're in Hong Kong and you want to come and see my workshop because it's very interesting and inspiring. I'm going to totally so, yeah. take you up on that offer. <laughs> yeah, do it. Please. <laughs> I haven't seen like people outside my workshop for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be good. Fantastic. Thanks again, Joseph, for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Please write our review on our podcast whatever you listen to your podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Live by visiting our website at www.theatreartlive.com and you can also follow us on social media and leave your questions and comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter or YouTube. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Shirata who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life Podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create life entertainment around the world.